You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my wonderful friendly. Um, gosh, I'm bad on adjectives today. You're having to think way too hard. Like, <laughs> love us and we know you do. I love you. That's right. My wonderful co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. <laughs> and Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. <laughs> I'm glad I made you guys giggle. So Susan, I hear you have an unexpected car buying trip and I know nothing about this. So I'm anxious to hear about it. How do you buy a car unexpectedly? Well, like it wasn't like, we just didn't expect it to happen now. Well, so let me back up. We need some background. We need some background. So last (laughs) summer, okay. So first of all, like a little background of me, like we are historically like Toyota owners. Okay. The only car I actually have ever owned that was not a Toyota was my most recent car, which was a BMW, like small SUV because I bought it from my mother because she bought it and didn't like it that much. And I was like, okay, I will buy it. We have never ever bought a new car because we're like big Dave Ramsey fans. And, you know, Oh, he's a Nashville guy, Susan, you know, his HQ's in Nashville. You have to come when you visit, you'll have to go to Dave Ramsey's headquarters. I know. I know. And so, you know, that's just always been our philosophy. And so we ended up in a car accident this last summer and it was one of those, like, we were literally like stopped waiting to get onto a highway that was completely backed up. And someone just literally 30 miles per hour Ooh. went right into the back right hand side. None of us were hurt or anything like this. But, you know, it's one of those things where you go into, so we got it to the place to get the estimate and they gave us an estimate and they were like, Oh, it's going to be like $8,000. And, but the insurance will cover it and everything like that. So we're like, okay, well, it took them like three and a half months to get the part that they thought they needed. Okay. And when they gave us this estimate, they're like, now we'll probably find some more stuff once we start (laughs) taking things off. But this is where we'll start with. So we're like four months down the road with a car we couldn't drive. Okay. Oh, no. So we brought it in. They finally got the parts in. We brought it in. And, you know, the first day they're like, um, the damage is totaling over $20,000. Oh, no. <laughs> There's parts like the frame that we can't even really order. <laughs> Why did they not know that from the beginning, though? Because they have to peel off parts for them to see what was actually damaged underneath. Uh, so we sat there essentially wasting four months of our lives with the car sitting in our driveway waiting for them to get the parts in. We bring the parts, you know, bring it in. Oh, it's totaled. So then bye-bye car. And so we're like, okay, well, we'll figure out what we want to do. Well, with me driving to Corpus, that kind of three-hour drive every other week, and a lot of cars have not been real comfortable for me. I wanted like a certain type of seat and stuff. I was very interested in potentially getting a Tesla. And buying a car for me was actually one of the most 
anxiety provoking things ever. Oh, yeah. yeah. This whole time that we were like, oh, you know, it's possible that the car could get totaled. Like I wouldn't look like it was just not something I wanted to do. So, you know, Tesla's not technically a dealership. So they don't really usually have cars or a lot of cars for you to test drive. So I had gone there one Friday to test drive cars. They had absolutely nothing. They're like, well, you can get on a list. We can call you when we have some cars in. They get a few cars in each quarter. I was like, okay, fine. So they contacted me. They had gotten their shipment of a few cars in. I was like, okay, well, my husband and I can come in like a month from now is like the only time we can come. So I'm like, I didn't really even expect them to even have a car available for us to test drive at the time. So we go in and they actually had a Model 3 and a Model Y in the showroom that you could sit in. And I was like, ooh, the Model Y definitely was more comfortable for me. And so we test drove it. We decided, okay, we're going to buy one. And this was before Elon Musk signed that deal with the car rental agency Hertz, I think. Uh huh. Yeah. So he signed over 100,000 Teslas. So everybody's projected date went out. So this was actually the week before this happened. So like, <laughs> in light of things, this is so funny. So we're sitting there and we're like, when you order from Tesla, like literally it's okay. You pick your color and then you pick your wheels and you pick your interior. There's only like five things you pick. Okay. It's, it's really pretty simple. Well, he was like, we were at the color question. I'm like, I was kind of going between gray and red. And I'm like, you know what? This is my first and potentially only new car ever. <laughs> so I'm going to go for red. I'm going to be fun about this, you know? Oh, that's cool. That's the color I would have picked, Susan. I think that's a good color. I picked red and he goes, and he goes, I've got a question for you. And he like puts like these certain wheels on and I'm like, and he's like, what do you think about these wheels? And I'm like, I really could not like give a hoot about wheels. I'm like, <laughs> I really don't care. Do they, as long as they roll, you're good with them. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I really have no like educated opinion on this. And he goes, well, because I've got this one here. And so it was somebody had ordered a car. It had gotten delivered. And the thing had fallen through, which apparently this does not usually happen at all. And he literally had one sitting in his lot. Man, Susan, you're driving a red Tesla now. So if anybody around New Braunfels sees a redheaded chick driving <laughs> a red Tesla, it's you. Yes. So it was it was really exciting. And actually, the price on the Tesla has gone up $2,000 in like the last two weeks. So I was very excited. You know, that's... It's, it is kind of nice because it is the no haggle thing. It's kind of like, this is the price of your car. Oh, is that how Tesla is? No haggle? Yeah, this is the price and that's what it is. Oh, okay. So that, that's kind of nice, but I, I, I am enjoying it and it is super comfy and it is it definitely is a learning curve though. Let it drive itself. Are you comfortable yet with it blazing through traffic? Um, No. <laughs> so I, we, didn't, we didn't sign up for the full self-driving at this point. That's an additional like $10,000 that I'm like, Ooh. I'm not quite sure I'm ready for that, but we're learning and, and it's different, but I am enjoying it. So. Well, cool. That's exciting. So right back at you, Susan. Now we're ready for the question of the day. Have you got a question for us? I do. Okay. My husband and I have been trying to conceive for two years now for a second baby. I've had blood tests done and it has all come back great. I'm ovulating each month and all tests have come back wonderful for that. However, my husband had a semen analysis done. The first test came back that he had little motility. So they tested him again and his test came back normal. 
The next step my doctor is wanting us to see is if my tubes are blocked. Although the test will cost us $1,300 and that's just not on the cards for us. Ooh. Is there anything else we could do or try or take? I've asked my doctor, but he's really pushing me to get the test with my tubes. And I just can't see myself spending so much to do to come back normal. We've been tracking ovulation each month and try the baby dance early in the morning. So the sperm is at the best first thing in the morning. And we're just not having any luck. Our baby is four years old. And I feel like time is ticking since we don't want them too far apart. Any help would be appreciated. I'm so emotionally drained and just don't know what else to do. The thing that jumps out to me on that one is $1,300. Woo, that's really expensive. That's really expensive for an HSG. Yeah, something doesn't sound right there. Well, I know at some places that they have better cash pricing than maybe what they bill for insurance. And so that may be something you want to ask around. I mean, I, I can tell you like in the New Braunfels, San Antonio area, there's one place that has substantially better cash pricing. And so calling around and asking at different radiology centers what their cash pricing for HSG is would probably be very, very helpful because I don't know anybody who pays that much. You could even get your doctor, like we have a lot of patients that come to us from Kentucky and from Eastern part of the state, Western part of the state. So we do a lot of HSGs remotely. And, you know, if there's another center in the next town over, you know, that does HSGs, check with them, see what their price is, because that sounds really high to me. I think that's really expensive. And part of the reason why we're we're kind of noting that is because it is really nice to know that the basic things that you need in order to get pregnant or functioning tubes and sperm are the two biggest things that are the easiest to check. Um, after HSG, there is a slight bump in fertility because you get the crap out of the tubes. So that can be helpful. Um, similarly, if anything has happened in the couple of years since your kiddo popped out, think scar tissue from endometriosis or any number of other reasons, if your tubes are blocked, that's a really helpful thing for us to know. And also their miracles happen every day. I mean, there are tubes that are nearly blocked and sperm counts that are low where a baby made it out. But the second time around, it's it's very unlikely to happen. And so if that is the case with you, we really want to know it because we don't want you wasting time and money and effort and emotional everything on treatment methods that are never going to work. Because as cranky as someone is about having to pay, you know, however many hundreds of dollars for an HSG, think hundreds, not thousands, um, however many hundreds of dollars for an HSG, think about how much crankier you would be six months from now after doing insemination cycles that were never, ever going to work because your tubes were blocked. That's one thing to consider and kind of paying attention to the semen analysis, like two that are that dramatically different really makes you wonder why, why was one low enough to be that low short of him collecting at home, stopping by the grocery store, leaving it in his car that then either heated up or froze one or the other, those types of things. Your recent fever or something like that could play into it. Yeah, a fever, any illness, that kind of thing. Heat-related things are bad for sperm. So hot tubs, computers on the lap, bike riders. If he rides bikes a bunch, the friction from bicycling can make a difference. So I would think about those things and just see if there's any lifestyle changes that he could make. Also, I didn't hear the age of our listener. Um, I do not have an age. So, you know, as we say, often age makes a difference. So the older you are, probably the more aggressive you want to be. And we I also didn't hear about her egg number, her AMH. That would be useful to know that. So I do have a question for you ladies, though. She mentioned something about morning sperm versus evening sperm. <laughs> are y'all aware of anything about this? Because that that's not one that I've heard before. 
I don't think it's the sperm that's better in the morning. I think it's the male anatomy that's better in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I am resisting so many inappropriate uh, comments now that have nothing to do with fertility at all. It is fertility docs uncensored, Carrie, you know. Uh, yeah, but I'm always wondering just how much should I push that uncensored thing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know that morning versus evening makes a difference so much as, okay, yeah, I can do this right now versus no, I want to go to bed. (laughs) Exactly. So anyway, I just wanted for our listeners, I was like, that's a new one. I got, I like it. I like it. It's very cute. All right. So we're going to move on here and talk about our topic of the day. And and today we're going to talk about hormone levels and IVF. And there's lots of things, lots of hormone levels that we check and some are probably more important than others. And we'll just kind of start out and Carrie, give me, throw out a hormone for me. Tell me which hormone you think is the most important one we need to start with. Well, let's play with estrogen first, because I feel like the the question that I get or the comment that I get most frequently is someone who will come in and we will have gone through her diagnostic testing and we'll be at the point where we're talking about medications and treatments. And she'll say, oh, I don't want to do anything that's going to raise my hormone levels because, you know, estrogen's bad. That is probably the the set of comments that I hear most frequently or people who are just asking, what are the side effects? I'm really worried about what the high levels of hormones in fertility treatment are going to do. And so estrogen is one of the prime hormones that we work with, that we measure, that we watch and we play with all the time. Estrogen is produced by the ovaries. It's produced by a healthy follicle as it grows. And it varies a lot throughout the course of your cycle. So part of the reason why we do day three estrogen testing is because at that point, we know that along with the FSH, it should be quite low. And that gives us a particular set of information as to how we can plan your cycles. If you check that estrogen level, and this is all assuming for purposes of discussion that you have a textbook 28-day cycle. So if we check hormone levels and check your estrogen at day 14, I'm going to expect a very different result. And that's going to be a lot higher. And if we check it, you know, in the luteal phase, day 21, it's going to be a little bit different there. And it's going to, it goes up and down throughout the course of the month. So none of the hormones that we are working with are static. It's not like they hit one level and they are there to stay. They set up house, they live there and they never go away. All of these things are going up and down. And so that's part of the reason why we check levels all the time is because those ups and downs really inform us. So that's a normal cycle. Now, what happens when you go through fertility treatment? Well, with IVF in particular, your levels are going to go high. Great. We're trying to get more eggs to grow. More eggs growing means that there's higher estrogen. And so typically when someone says, oh, I don't want higher estrogen. (laughs) Well, if you're doing IVF, you really do, because that means that you have more eggs that are more competent and more productive and are producing that estrogen, which is a marker that your eggs are doing what we want them to be. And so very commonly estrogen levels go quite high during IVF treatment. So Carrie, I have a question for you. So a lot of stuff is written in the literature about high estrogen levels are bad and hyperstimulation. Can you talk a little bit about why that's probably not as big of an issue now as it used to be and why we used to worry about that a little bit? Yeah. So we used to really worry about really high estrogen levels and ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or OHSS, which is the shorthand for it. And the reason that that was a big deal is because unchecked OHSS can be very dangerous. You can land in the, in the ICU, severe electrolyte or your, the minerals in your body are, are going out of whack, misbehaving. It's bad news all, all around. And high estrogen levels become much riskier when you know you're going to perpetuate them. And so pregnancy by itself 
the presence of the HCG hormone, which is the pregnancy hormone, keeps those follicles and keeps the corpus luteum, which is the space the follicle turns into. Once that egg is gone, it's a functional space called the corpus luteum. It keeps all of that working forward and and into pregnancy. So when you get pregnant immediately after an IVF cycle, like you would with a fresh transfer, those hormone levels stay high and they can cause hyperstimulation or be associated, I should say, with hyperstimulation syndrome. And so it used to be that when we saw really high estrogen levels, we were like, stop, do not pass go, do not collect $200. We got to cancel because otherwise this woman can get really sick. Well, now with frozen embryo transfers, we have the best of a lot of worlds in that we can push the estrogen levels to be higher. We can get the eggs out. We can create the embryos and then we can let the uterus and the ovaries simmer down. Hormone levels come back low and we're less concerned about it. We used to think that that would perpetuate not only hyperstimulation syndrome, but worse egg quality and worse pregnancy outcomes. But what we have found is that it is actually more related to the hormonal environment at that time is great for making embryos, but it's really not great for transferring embryos and getting a good pregnancy. And so with the increase in technology, with the improvement in frozen embryo transfers, vitrification, which is a particular style of how to freeze the embryos, we are getting rid of the negative side effects of freezing embryos. We are taking advantage of how strongly we can push the ovaries to get more embryos for you. And so it ends up being far less of a concern from the embryo quality perspective. So Susan, along that same line, if estrogen is an important hormone, if it's the yin to your menstrual cycle, what's the yang to your menstrual cycle? The yang is your progesterone. (laughs) And why is that hormone important? So progesterone is important because it is what opens and closes the window of opportunity for implantation in the uterus, okay? And progesterone is also a big important factor in letting us know if your eggs are at the right stage or maturity to actually be retrieved and be able to accept a little sperm. And so practices can vary on how often they monitor progesterone. And I can say back in the day when I did fresh embryo transfers, I did a whole lot more progesterone levels during the IVF cycle than I necessarily do at at this point. So at this point, I do a progesterone level when I I do a lot of Lupron triggers. So I don't use the HCG trigger hardly at all to help reduce the risk of hyperstimulation syndrome. Okay. So HCG again is the pregnancy hormone. We can use it to help mature eggs and we can get into that in another little segment. But when we do the Lupron trigger, We measure two hormones. One is typically LH. The other one is progesterone. So we're going to stick with progesterone right now. And what what we're looking for is a progesterone rise. Ideally, I like to see it over three. However, in some ladies with diminished ovarian reserve who may not have many follicles, you know, somebody who may have between, you know, one to four follicles, we may not even get a progesterone level that high, but we usually just see some sort of rise. In the fresh cycle, the egg retrieval, that's where I use it. Whereas in the embryo transfer, Prior to starting progesterone, I prefer to have a progesterone level less than somewhere between 1 to 1.5 before starting progesterone because otherwise I think that um, we're not creating the right window. So just in a normal menstrual cycle, why is progesterone important and where is it produced? 
So progesterone is um, produced. Remember, Carrie talked about that corpus luteum. So the follicle that you ovulate from or that we retrieve an egg from, it undergoes a conformational change and becomes something called a corpus luteum. And it produces progesterone in the second half of your cycle. And that's what supports the pregnancy during the early phases is the corpus luteum. And if the follicle notices HCG hormone, whether from pregnancy or from injections, it can keep that going. So progesterone stays high for longer. Now, if you don't get pregnant and you have a drop in your progesterone, that's actually what makes you have a period is that drop in progesterone signals to your uterus to do an organized shedding of the lining of the uterus. All right. So I'm just going to pick a hormone. So another hormone I think is important is AMH. And so AMH stands for anti-mullerian hormone. It's a hormone that's secreted by all the little tiny eggs that you have in your ovaries. And, you know, when you come in and we look with ultrasound, we can see some of the tinier eggs, but they're sort of in the, they're a little bit bigger than the microscopic eggs. And we can count, and we call that a microfollicle count. Like Susan, I think mentioned a minute ago, Hormone levels can change, and so the AMH level can fluctuate a little bit. Microfollicle counts can fluctuate a little bit, but it's sort of two sides of a coin. The microfollicle count kind of gives us an indication the more that you have, the better your egg number is. But we can also measure the AMH. And so if we measure it, it doesn't tell us that you have like, you know, 5,360 eggs, but kind of the higher the number, the better. And so Typically, because it's produced by all those little microscopic eggs, our goal, we'd like for it to be, I mean, technically over one is normal. And I don't know how you guys feel, but usually I say I really would love for it to be over two and really the higher, the better. And sometimes we see patients with PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome that have really high levels of AMH. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. That's kind of a good thing to have extra AMH and extra eggs because you know, that's just something that we can't replace, you know, if you don't have a high number of eggs. But that AMH level tends not to be something we watch and something we mark as we're going through treatment. Like that's a check it, forget it kind of level. Exactly. And, and check it and forget it in the sense that if you're going through IVF, the benefit of that is it kind of helps guide our management, guides how much medicine we're going to give you. But yeah, that's a great point, Carrie. So how do you guys approach when people are asking you about hormone levels and they say, oh, I really, I'm worried that the levels are going to go high. I don't want to mess with my hormones at all. I don't want high hormone levels. How do you answer that question? Well, some of it depends on the context of why we're doing the IVF cycle. But let's assume that there's not a hormonal cancer or <laughs> extenuating <laughs> circumstance. Like this, Let's say that this is normal average couple coming through. I mean, really what I try to explain is that in the absence of a hormonal cancer, that what we're doing is we're essentially looking at doing a year of trying in a single month. Okay. And, you know, I really try to get down to the root of what that question is. A lot of times the root of that question is somebody's worried that I'm going to take all their eggs. Are you going to take all their eggs if you stimulate them? I am not <laughs> taking all their eggs. So I am actually only taking your body decided two months ago which eggs were going to be those little bitty micro follicles that Abby was talking about. So those little antral follicles. And so what I'm doing is this month, if you left to your own devices, most women would ovulate one egg and the rest of them are going to undergo something called atresia or programmed cell death. They're just going to disappear. 
So all I'm doing is I'm taking maximal use of this month's cohort, hoping to get somewhere between, you know, 10 to 15 eggs to give you a good chance of achieving pregnancy with your IVF cycle. Very good. So Carrie, what is your next hormone you'd like to talk about? Let's talk about FSH. Okay. That's a good one. So FSH stands for follicle stimulating hormone. And during the context of diagnostic testing, we oftentimes check this, you know, right around day three of the cycle, because we expect it to be low, because just like all the other hormones, it goes up and down. And we want to know what it's doing at, at any given point in time. So it starts off low, and then it gradually creeps up because it is coming from your brain and talking to your ovaries, and it's telling them to grow an egg. So in the context of a natural cycle where you're not doing any fertility treatment. You want this communication to be free and easy. You want the brain to be talking in an inside voice to the ovaries, because as soon as that level creeps up, it means that the brain is yelling at the ovaries, typically not because there's a problem with the brain. Usually it's because the ovaries aren't listening. So this is the, your mom telling you as a teenager to clean your room. (laughs) The first time she asks, it is in a nice, polite inside voice. The 85th time she asks, there is some yelling going on. Clean your room. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's kind of the context of normal ups and downs. And for someone who's got diminished ovarian reserve, that FSH level lives at a higher level. For someone who's menopausal, it is in the stratosphere because the ovaries have not only stopped listening, they have put themselves in a soundproof room and it doesn't matter what the FSH does. It it can go sky high and the ovaries could give a rat's ass, frankly. Um, They're going to do what they want to do, which is typically at that point, nothing. So during an IVF cycle, what we do is we give you FSH, usually in the form of medications, injections. There's also some other ways that we can give medications where it induces your own FSH to go higher. And the intent of that is to give the ovaries a stronger boost, a stronger set of instructions. We are temporarily yelling at them with the nicest of intentions to grow more eggs. So as Susan said, we can grow an entire cohort, a year's worth of eggs all at once. And so when you have those levels go high, your response to them is entirely dependent on what your ovaries are doing. Because like I said, you can have a menopausal woman who's 80 years old and her FSH matches her age. I mean, typically it should be you know eight to 10 or less. She can have an FSH of 80 to 100 and she's walking around and doesn't do diddly squat because her ovaries are closed for business. And so when we are giving you these these medications with the FSH, it's going to drive up your estrogen production because it is telling the ovaries to grow eggs. If the ovaries are well-behaved, they are going to listen and they're going to grow those eggs and your estrogen is going to rise as a result. If your ovaries are not well-behaved, there will not be as many follicles. They won't produce as much estrogen. So we could be hammering all of the FSH in the world at your ovaries and still not get a high level response. So FSH is one of those things where it really has less effect in the grand scheme of things because it is more dependent on what are your ovaries doing because that's what's going to be the deciding factor is what your FSH does. And one kind of point to make about that too is men also have FSH. And so if it turns out, you know, you're worried about your husband's or we're worried about your husband's count and it's really low, 
that's one of the hormones we'll check in him as well. Same, his mother yells at him just as much as your mother yells at you if, <laughs> if he has a messy room. So if his testes are on their way out, they're not doing what they're supposed to, the brain is going to yell at his testes and say, you need to make testosterone. And specifically with him, actually, it's yelling saying, you need to make sperm. FSH tends to talk to the testes and tell the testes to make sperm. So, but the same rules apply for men as they do for women in that regard. So Susan, again, yin and yang here. So Carrie talked about the yin. What, what's sort of the corollary? What's the hormone that sort of matches with FSH? So I'm going to talk a little bit about LH. So I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. So when we look at LH is something that, you know, when we look at fertility, it, it's kind of been a, I think it kind of gets the shaft sometimes. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Luteinizing hormone. What does it stand for? Well, LH stands for luteinizing, luteinizing hormone. hormone. Yeah. Yeah. I answered my own question. That's <laughs> all good. It's all good. You know, back in the day, LH was a big thing because it was like, oh, we, we, you know, we need to test LH because that's a way we can potentially maybe diagnose things like PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome and stuff like that. And that kind of got like shot out the window. And, and to me, you know, it has gotten the shaft, but the nice thing is with <laughs> the onset of doing these Lupron triggers for IVF cycles, essentially what the Lupron trigger does is it signals to your brain to produce LH or luteinizing hormone. And that is the hormone that causes the eggs to start going through the maturization process that needs to happen. And so there is a small subset of women who may not produce enough LH on their own. And so that's the reason why we do this testing is to make sure that your brain did what we told it to. Okay. Another kind of neat thing about LH is that LH has a really short half-life. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, we were talking about earlier about doing HCG triggers with medicines like Novarel or Pregnel or Avadrel or, you know, kind of pick your poison. So the reason why those two can be used relatively interchangeably is because the shape of LH and the shape of HCG, the pregnancy hormone, are almost identical. So identical that the brain really can't tell the difference between them. And so that's the reason why they can be used um, somewhat interchangeably to achieve the same goal. However, in IVF cycles and women were concerned about hyperstimulation syndrome, that HCG can significantly increase that risk. So Susan, what's so important about the LH trigger in IVF? Why, why are we so particular about how, what time we want a patient to take the luteinizing hormone trigger? Well, we're really particular about that because when we do that and cause that LH surge to happen, you will ovulate, you will release the eggs. And so our job is to get those eggs before they are released. And we are very good at doing that most of the time. So once in a while, we'll have somebody who, despite our best efforts, may ovulate at the wrong time. We tend to see that in women with diminished ovarian reserve, women who are older, even with normal ovarian reserve testing. If you're in your 40s, your ovaries are much more likely to misbehave and that type of thing. But so much of what we do, especially with that, that trigger shot, relies on timing. So, you know, most of the other things, you know, if you do things within a couple of hours, that's fine. But when we tell you the time of that trigger shot, like that needs to be like 
Oh, it's the most important <laughs> shot you'll take. It's the most important shot you take. And so on the flip side, what if somebody doesn't take it correctly? What if they accidentally give themselves only a partial dose or they take it a little call bit too? Call your doctor. <laughs> call it's your a big doctor. deal, right? Call, call, call. It's a big deal. And there's most things are not like hugely, hugely detrimental if we know what's happening and we can make accommodations. Mm-hmm. But you have to call us and call us sooner than later because it, it can make a big difference. And sometimes, you know, we're like, oh, okay, we can just maneuver this and make this happen. Other times it, it can make, it, you know, there's a lot of players. It's not just, you know, you and your doctor there. It's you and your doctor and your embryologist and the anesthesiologist and, and your nursing teams and, and everything. Like there's so many people involved that we all have to be on the same page. And so, communication is, it's a big issue. It's a big issue when it comes to if something went wrong, but definitely if you are concerned that something did not go the way that it was supposed to let your doctor know right away, because we can make magic happen. Okay. It's, it's amazing what we can make happen, but we can only make it happen if we, if we know ahead of time and have enough time to prepare. Well, one thing I would say about luminizing hormone is I think it really kind of has the last laugh because there's a whole bracelet that's geared toward determining when it's going to surge. And like there's kits that people go every month to buy at the grocery store that that's just geared toward luteinizing hormone and when it's secreted. So actually, I think, it you know, people worry about it more than they do FSH. So LH kind of has the last laugh in the whole game. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Mm-hmm. So any other hormones we need to discuss about uh, or that related to IVF? I think the comparison with what particularly estrogen and progesterone, because those are the main hormones that, that have the biggest impact, what they're like in pregnancy is probably, I think, one of the main points to drive home is that when you get pregnant, they all go up. And they don't go up for just the 10 days that you're doing a stem cycle. They go up for nine whole months. And so many people get bent out of shape because they're like, oh, I don't want those hormones to go up. And you do want those hormones to go up because you do want to be pregnant. And that's what's going to happen. And all these hormones are natural because the ones that are really exerting the most biological effect are the ones that your own body is producing. So that's that's an important perspective to have because your levels are going to go high when you get pregnant. And this may extend them by another, you know, 10 days of a stem cycle. And uh, when we're doing a transfer cycle, the the raise in hormones is really pretty minimal. It's more akin to just a straight ovulation. And so we are taking them higher than what they would be. But when you look at it in the grand context of things, it's not that much higher. And so a lot of people get really worried about that um, and work themselves into a corner um, when they maybe don't need to. To use your analogy, Carrie, it's like dumping water in the ocean, right? Yep. Ocean's big and it's going to be full of estrogen when you get pregnant. So a little more estrogen dumping it in the ocean, no big deal. Uh, Having a rainstorm hit while you're already swimming is (laughs) either way. (laughs) That's right. That's right. All right. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertilitydocsuncensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, so if you want to hop on our Instagram or Facebook pages, we would be happy to get your ideas. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Please reach out to your doctor for any medical advice, and we look forward to seeing you guys soon. Bye. 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 Bye.